This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. If you are an accounting, finance, data analysis, economics, numbers type of person, tech savvy, but not really salesy type person, you probably thought all of the career opportunities for you were sitting in cubicle farms at giant accounting firms or in the finance department at some bank or something. Not so. You can work in an amazing, fast-growing startup and do work that directly helps other entrepreneurs. You can work at Ceteris. You can be on the cutting edge of technology and automation within accounting. You can join a team of professional accountants who embrace automation, who use their skills to provide affordable and useful solutions to small businesses and entrepreneurs. It's located in Charleston, South Carolina, which if I do say so myself, is a wonderful place to live. And this is a really amazing opportunity. You don't have to be an accountant necessarily, but if you're kind of a finance numbers type of person, check out isaac.ceteris.com to get more information. isaac.ceteris.com. Okay, today I'm joined by Matt Needham. Matt, actually, I was just remembering this today, he was the first ever Praxis intern. When the company first started, he was interning for me. Um, and Matt couldn't stick around for the simple fact that I couldn't pay him anything. And after a while, he said he, need, he needed to. That does get some... in the way sometimes. Yeah. So, Matt, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Isaac. Well, we're not here to talk about uh, your glorious past as a Praxis intern, even though I, w- I will forever hold that over your head and be like, remember when you used to be my intern? Pretend like, you know, some kind of power position. Being um, the first of anything is pretty cool. <laughs> it is, actually. It, uh, you were the first in a in a long line of, well, basically everyone who works <laughs> for Praxis now started out uh, doing that. So um, I wanted to talk, though, about your podcast, you've launched a podcast called the social change podcast. And, um, I love the topic, obviously, um, long fascinated in social change, you know, sort of how to, how to bring about a freer world. But I wanted to just kind of talk a little bit about what went into this and your own theories on it. So to start with what made you decide that you wanted to, because I know you were thinking about it for a while and you felt like you couldn't commit to something else, you know, really uh, regularly or really lengthy because you're, you're busy. What what made you decide to launch this podcast? Uh, well, I feel like you're setting this up to uh, make yourself look even better, but it was an email you sent out actually was the kind of pushing me over the edge. <laughs> <laughs> I, I um, actually didn't know that, but if I did, I would have played it up even more. Yeah, so um, I remember... I, you know, podcasts have been around for many years now, and I, I remember first hearing about them, and I was like, this idea sounds so silly. Like, radio is dying. This is people trying to take an old, dying medium and attempt to rejuvenate it, but it's going to die out. Um, and I'm a huge music fan. I love listening to music, um, and that's typically what I do, like, on a commute or, you know, um, walking to the store or something. But um, I don't know what really prompted it, but about a year ago, I decided to give a podcast a shot um, while I was working out. 
and I found I really enjoyed it. And because, you know, I, I typically do weightlifting. And so, you know, you're really intense for about 10 seconds and then you've got a rest period. And so I'm standing there around for a minute or two waiting and I can listen and, and engage it while I'm doing that. Um, so I listened to more and more and I was like, I should I should do a podcast myself. But I couldn't think of what I would do that would actually be interesting. I didn't feel like I was an expert in anything. And what I'm an expert in, I guess, you know, most is what I do in my day job at Students for Liberty training and developing students, uh, student activists, which is interesting and I love it, but there's, the audience for that is pretty small. Anyways, you sent out an email about getting involved in starting a podcast as a way to learn, and that got my wheels spinning, um, something that I wasn't necessarily an expert in but could become an expert through bringing on people on the show, asking them questions, and learning. And so from that, I was like, well, what am I interested in possibly becoming an expert in down the road? And the question of social change is what really drives me. Um, it's why I do what I do in my job um, and why I want, con- want to continue growing in that career. It's I've, I've kind of got in, in mind my way of looking at the world and what I think, um, you know, justice is and, and so forth. But how we get to that endpoint is still an open question for me and, and how we get to our visions of society and our visions of the world we want to live in and creating that for ourselves. So that's what prompted me to put together a podcast on that topic, bring on people who have different perspectives and what, how you answer that question and not just in theory, but what are you doing in practice? What projects are you working on? What are you trying to implement to make this better and what can we learn from it? So that's, that's really how I, I – um, dove into this social change podcast. You know, um, we got to give a shout out to uh, actually the producer of this show, Ryan Ferguson. He's the one, I think it was a link from him that I shared about podcasting as a learning tool. You know, I, I've mm. been doing the podcast for a little over a year and I have clearly learned a ton from it, but I hadn't explicitly put it in those terms. And he actually did this whole presentation and, and um, blog post for Praxis about how if you can pick a topic you want to master and you can find 10 experts to interview for your podcast and that what you will learn, you're not only your, what you'll learn from them, but your able, ability just to access them, to have those conversations in the first place. Um, having a podcast as a, as a pretext to do that really cool insight. And so I love this. I love this sort of humble approach and I love that it's very focused because it's very selfish. It's like, I want to understand this better and I want to talk to people who do understand it better. And using your podcast as a, as a tool to learn. That's pretty powerful. Um, on this social change thing, you know, you and I share a lot in common in this way where we both, you know, spent a a number of years working sort of with different organizations that have missions to make the world a freer and better place. And I don't know if you found this, uh, SFL seems to have a, a more, um, a defined theory of how change happens. But I remember when I first started working with a lot of nonprofits in various capacities, they all have like broad missions, you know, make the world a better place, make things freer, whatever, something sort of broad. And then they all do activities, but almost yeah. none of them have like an explicit known theory. Maybe the founder did, but most of the employees don't the board, the donors often don't of why these activities specifically have a causal connection to bringing about this outcome. It's just like, well, we want to decrease poverty and we raised a bunch of money and then we're going to use it for a bunch of activities like a banquet to bring awareness. And it's, and without question, 
okay, what is the chain here? What actually happens and how does that result in the outcome you want? And it's, it's not that those are wrong. It's that they're almost not existent for many places. They don't yeah. have a, a theory. Have you found that to be the case? Well, well, so one comment I'll have on this point is, and one thing that I like about how I'm approaching my podcast so far is that's actually kind of okay huh. if you are using those different activities in some kind of like semi-conscious trial and error experiment, right? As if you could have your team going off and doing all kinds of different things that bring out their passion and their interest towards your mission, as long as there are people who are looking critically at what's going on and evaluating their efforts and then adjusting based on that. That's and that's what point. I want to bring to the table in my podcast is like asking people what they're working on and what's going well and what's not. But, you know, I, I think a lot of organizations fail to do that kind of critical thinking with the different activities. And, and I look at the modern think tank world, especially at the, the state level within our community, and a lot of them hit on this idea of kind of like investigative journalism in the past couple of years. And I think a lot of organizations spent a decade even more before coming upon this idea, and it's been a huge success for them, right? And it makes sense based on their theory of social change. And if they had thought about what that means, I think it would have come about clearer but they kind of stumbled upon it through trial and error of, you know, writing about things that would get them attention and then realizing, oh, the mainstream media is not covering these kind of stories. There's a market need for us right now. And, and so I think you can stumble upon these ideas through trial and error, but you have to do that thinking and conversation, draw it back to the mission for it to actually be more than just a one-off success. So, so the theory behind something like a um, organization with policy outcomes, let's say lower taxes, less government, doing this investigative journalism is sort of the realization, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is what you're getting at, the realization that, oh, we're producing policy recommendations, but for those to have an impact, they presume a highly informed electorate who's going to understand the issues, see our study, and then therefore put pressure electorally or whatever on candidates to abide by it. The missing piece is that we don't have a highly informed electorate because they're rationally ignorant. So we actually have to inform them of what's going on first and what their lawmakers are actually doing before we assume that giving them better information is going to help or something to that effect. Would you say is like that's the realization you're talking about? Yeah, I, I, I think that fills it in. And also, I think another way to phrase it is so what's the famous quote about economics? I think it was Mises. It's no sin to not know economics, but to pretend you know it. Oh yeah, uh, Rothbard. It, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah is it yeah. Rothbard? Okay. Yeah, to to have to, so, to have strong opinions on it, um, you know, when you don't know anything is the problem, but not to not. Yeah. So like a lot of like nonprofit executives will have a theory of social change, and they'll do a decent job of communicating it, but then, you know, they they imagine this world in which they design the plan, and then everything goes neatly from it. But they can't actually design. They don't have all the information about, you know, what are the actual gaps in people in the in what's out there for social change to happen. And you only learn that through experimentation and looking at signals in the market. Right. And that's the real tricky part is you can design in your head, you know, what the map for social change is going to be. But you probably know way less than you think you do about the current state of affairs and what needs to happen is kind of my point here. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great point. And I love what you said about experimentation too, um, that, you know, you, you don't have to know everything that's going to work. Um, but you have to know that you're trying to know and, mm -hmm. and yep, yep. you know, uh, you know, it's interesting. Nonprofits have this, this challenge because 
you know, something that works um, can be defined in many different ways. So if if your goal is to, you know, whatever, something really tangible, uh, get fresh water wells into some villages that don't have access to clean water, for example, there are activities that you can follow a causal chain that lead to that happening um, efficiently. And there are activities that lead to you fundraising successfully. And they're not always the same. Yeah. And there's kind of this underlying belief that, well, whatever else happens, the more successful we fundraise, the better everything else will be. So we might as well do the things that raise us a ton of money because then the more money we have, we can, which is not always the case. I mean, this is the case in for-profits too. Like raising venture capital doesn't Mm -hmm. just mean you're going to, like if you don't actually know what you're going to put it towards and you don't know it's going to help you grow. So there's that really difficult tension. How do you you find, I mean, so you've been at SFL for a while. What, what have you found, and you've worked with a lot of other nonprofits, are sort of the best ways to try to keep those two different goals in track, like doing activities that do well for fundraising versus activities that you have good evidence to believe are effective in achieving your mission. When those diverge, what's the process of trying to like keep them in harmony? Oh man, this is a question way beyond my experience. You're free to think out loud here because I don't yeah. know either. I mean, I think um, sticking to a plan in a long term is essential, and it, it's kind of unideal. It's like I, one of the points I actually want to make about what I've learned is that like the world just changes so fast today, and so you want to be able to pivot quickly. Um, you know, a lean startup mindset. At the same time, a lot of times when nonprofits pivot quickly, it's because of what you're talking about. It's because they recognize an opportunity to bring in funds and so they redirect in that direction even if it's not going to accomplish the mission. So a good rule of thumb I've seen is that if you stick with what you started with, that's more in terms of your actual output mission ends than just pivoting towards money. But it's not ideal necessarily because a lot of times there are legitimate opportunities to pivot based on your mission and programs. It's, 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 it's a tough thing to identify. And, and generally speaking, it's just one of the problems that nonprofits suffer from is the lack of a profit motive, right? There's no clear price signal, like in a profitable company, a for-profit company to show you where you're succeeding, where you're not. So also just devoting a lot to, uh, measurement and, and identifying what success means and drilling that out is key to, I think, Organizations that do that are more likely to succeed than otherwise is, is another, you know, pretty simple but important lesson. So uh, let's let's back up on your personal story a little bit. Um, obviously, you are interested in making the world a freer place and in, in sort of libertarian ideas in a, in a more you know libertarian uh, society, yeah. although I, I, I'm losing a sense of what that word means anymore as it gets used more widely. But I think. Broadly speaking, uh, maximizing individual freedom and and minimizing interference by governments or whatever. First, how did you get into those ideas? And then second, where was the point at which your interest went from what you think society should look like to strategies to get there? Cool. So to answer the first question of how I got into this, you know, political philosophy in a high – so I was in high school – towards at my end of my high school was around the 08 election and that was when i i first got interested in it as probably my first time i was really interested in politics and i was following the election and i heard what this guy ron paul had to say i thought it was really interesting my dad had bought a copy of the revolution his book at the time 
Um, not sure why. He wasn't identifying as libertarian then, although he does now. And I read that and I was like, oh, I totally believe this. And also at the same time, I was playing a video game called Bioshock. Wait, um, is that the one that's like a like a dystopian version yes. of Ayn Rand's Gulch? Yes. Gulch? Yeah, it's a dystopian take on Ayn Rand. <laughs> I've heard of this. Um, it sounds fascinating. Which is, which is actually kind of fun because I'm like, oh, I actually like don't think this guy is quite the evil villain they make him out to be. Although you know, he is an evil villain. But anyways, um, and, and so I was playing this game and a friend of mine is like, oh, you should actually read Ayn Rand. Here's Atlas Shrugged. And of course, me, yeah, <laughs> Ow, I know, right? And, at, the, at the time, I was like the smarty pants, and I was like, oh, of course, I'm gonna read this thousand page book outside of school just to prove that like I'm really intelligent and everything. <laughs> um, and so I did it, and I thought I thought it was pretty good. Um, although I skipped over the the Galt speech, as anyone reading it for the first time probably should. That's like you know a tenth of the twelve hundred page book. But anyways, so the, it, from there, I identified as a libertarian. I got. Um, I, I got to know other organizations out there and learned about Students for Liberty, and that's how I got involved with my activism work today. Did you kind of um, know right away like that you wanted to like dedicate your career to trying to advance liberty, or was that sort of something that evolved? Yeah, I did. And But obviously my take on it then was very different from what it is now and around this question of social change. At the time, I was like everyone else and thought, okay – so I'm interested in advancing liberty in the world as a career. That means I should go to law school and then go and be an advisor to a politician and then run for office someday. And maybe I can like become a clerk or a judge someday and like that would be my crowning achievement. You know, and, and we're, we're all going to make a libertarian utopia. But then the, the, the second evolution is what got me to this interest in the social change question. And I think there's two parts to this. The first was just realizing the scope of what it means to be a libertarian or a classical liberal and, and what that vision can be. Um, and you kind of got it, it in a joke about like, what does that even mean? Um, and I think a lot of people have trouble with this because it's very popular now, actually. But like once I realized that like, you know, there's what Ron Paul says in his books, which is pretty mild in my opinion. It's just like, you know, kind of like a Gary Johnson take today of like, you know, fiscal conservative, social liberal, shrink the government in both spheres, you know. But then there's there's you know there's uh, there's objectivism there's anarcho-capitalism um, there's now I, I you know like um, bleeding heart libertarians which I think is radical too just in a very different direction and, and so learning that there's all these different takes on the principles was interesting to me right it's like oh it's really not that simple what does it even mean to get to the next step um, and then also I as as I started to gain responsibility and authority within Students for Liberty as a student activist. And I started answering questions about like management and projects and goal setting and stuff. I started to think about it in terms of like project management of advancing the cause of liberty, which is a really complex question, right? And that's what got me interested into, okay, how did we see society changing? What are the paths towards it? And then, you know, hopefully getting some kind of answers to those questions allows me to successfully over my career advance liberty and, and have numerous success stories hopefully by the time you know my, my time is done I've always um, been impressed from the, from the time I met you years ago when you were a student by that in you that you are a very I'm not at all surprised that you're launching this podcast and stuff you're one of those people you are such a execution implementation focused guy that like you don't just want to talk about where we're going you want to talk about 
<clears throat> what most people are bored by, which is like the finer points of <laughs> what should we do to get yeah. there in the most efficient way possible. Um, what, that's, and that's think, a good, that's a good skill set in, in a world of people in the, the sphere that you're in, sort of the nonprofit mission focused organization sphere where people are big ideas, people driven by a big broad vision of like an end state those people who are asking those questions about are we being as effective as we can are so crucial. Well, well, I appreciate that. Thanks. And, and I think part of it too is like I'm bored by the other big debate, uh, which is like anarcho-capitalist or minarchist. You know, uh, yeah. Like where, how far is that or, in state? Do we have exactly do we have no government or is there yeah. a you know, night watchman state or whatever? Yeah, I I enjoyed those debates for a good year or so, and now they just bore the heck out of me. They to me they're just not interesting, and I, I get why they're interesting to other people, and they're bored by the execution side. But I guess just I'm I'm wired in this direction, and I I enjoy it that way. You're, you're like look. As long as the train is stalled, we don't need to debate which how far yeah, it's going to go. Let's, yeah. <laughs> let's get it moving efficiently, yeah. and then we can talk about who wants to get off at which stage. Exactly. Um, so when it comes to SF Students for Liberty, where, where you're working, what what is Students for Liberty's theory of social change? So the activities that they engage in, um, what is the theory about how that's going to help lead to uh, liberty or a freer world? Yeah, so we we have a, a pretty key premise, which is that we have the right ideas. We need better people. We are pretty confident in uh, the the power of limited government, um, in individual rights, and, and the classical liberal framework. But we think in order for it to be more implemented and practiced in the world, we need better leaders of our political philosophy. Um, and so we want to see you know better politicians and people working in the political arena. We also want to see um, better academics from our world. We want to see better intellectuals from our world. We want to see people involved in just other parts of, you know, civil society, church leaders, community leaders, um, and, and so forth, business leaders who share our worldview um, and get them into, you know, places where they're able to have um, leadership and an impact on the world. So how we do that? is taking people interested in this, you know, political philosophy and equipping them with the skills and opportunities they need to develop themselves, um, become better people and leaders to go on and, you know, advance liberty in however way they want to in the future, be it uh, a full on career dedicated to it or one part of their life, you know, as, as a project, um, you know, and again, be it in politics or outside of it, um, you know, uh, whatever they choose to do with it. But uh, equipping the leaders for the future of a, a classical liberal society is kind of the our vision of, of the world and how things are going to change. So kind of finding those people who like you probably right around that undergraduate college spot in their life become interested or intrigued by. Um, whether it's in the political realm, sort of libertarian ideas, or just in the in the realm of philosophy more generally, they get a little bit interested in it. You want to have events and programs and and um, opportunities for them to develop intellectually and professionally, so that they can sort of become influencers for those ideas, so to speak. That is exactly right. Um, giving them opportunities and resources that they wouldn't get anywhere else um, to develop themselves and, and challenge themselves during their college years. Um, to go on and, um, you know, be, be future leaders in the world. And we come at this approach because we don't think change is going to happen overnight. It's, it's too big of a question. Um, but if you identify the people to invest in and then invest in them, we think that that will have long-term returns um, for the cause we believe in. 
What what dissuaded you from the law school politics route that you were originally pursuing? I think it was two things. It was a combination of working in the political arena and reading James Buchanan. Uh, I, I did the typical route of interning for a state legislator and then getting a part-time position. And I, I really enjoyed that time, actually. Um, I, I really respect the person that I worked for. I think they were trying to do their best to limit government. Um, but I think that helped me see, along with the theory from James Buchanan and some other public choice thinkers, that what was going on in that sphere was the end of the cycle. You know, it's kind of like um, someone making a pencil, but they hadn't gotten the graphite yet uh, to play on Leonard Reed's analogy, right? It's like we needed to get the other resources in the um, primary goods before it could go on to the consumer goods stage. There needed to be a lot more investment first before we could even get to the end of the equation where we get to a situation with lesser government and more individual autonomy and freedom. How to go from zero to a startup job in nine months. You don't need to jump through hoops or blast out resumes. You can start today. Praxis combines a three-month professional boot camp with a six-month paid apprenticeship at a startup that leads directly to a full-time job. Startups aren't just for coders. Sales, marketing, operations... Even if you're not sure what you're interested in, Praxis places you with a dynamic, growing company where you do work you love, become part of a team, and make a difference. Praxis is tailored to your goals and your interests. Coaching sessions, group discussions with your peers, skills training, and a portfolio of projects along with the apprenticeship create a powerful combination of real-world experience and intensive learning. We are relentlessly committed to helping you discover and do what makes you come alive. We don't just prepare you for a job, we actually give you one. No degree is required to get started on your career. Whether you're an ambitious go-getter right out of high school, a creative thinker who's bored in college, or a college grad looking for the next step, discover Praxis. Great jobs are waiting. Are you ready? So with your with your podcast, um, I know you've only released three episodes so far. What what are well several questions? I guess you can take them in the order you want. For one is sort of like what's the do you have like a long term goal or do you have like a certain number of episodes that you know you want to do or topics you know you want to cover that you haven't? Um, and then I also want to ask what you have learned so far from just your first few your your first few guests that you've had. Yeah, so first I'll start off. There are three out, um, but a fourth is coming on Monday, which I think is November oh, it'll 1st. it'll be out probably the same yeah. day that this one's out. So yes, oh, there, cool. are, there are four out then from... Uh... Excellent. <laughs> nice. Yeah, check it out, socialchangepodcast.com. Um, the next one's going to be Ed Lopez talking about his book, Mad Men, Intellectuals, and Academic Scribblers. That's a great um, book. And, and his study of the topic. Um, but uh, so what have I learned? 
or, or actually, no. So before that, you asked what what are my goals here? Yeah. So I have a list, uh, a, a long list of people and episode topics that I want to have on, and this is actually what really pushed me over the edge. And I had this idea: okay, I can do a social change podcast as a way to become an expert. Let me see what that would look like. And as I started brainstorming, just in one day, I had a list of like 30 episode ideas <laughs> and people. And I was like, okay, I have to do this, you know. Um, so that was pretty cool. And, and I don't know how long this will run. Maybe I'll hit a point where I don't have time for it or um, I feel like I've exhausted the topic to some degree. But ideally, like, you know, I get all these different frameworks out there and just keep diving into what are people working on? What are we learning about it? But also, I think the next evolution it is still very early on, but the, the I think the second stage of this podcast would be bringing on people who are radically challenging um, the kind of like status quo building that I've had of the guests so far, which is that like ideas matter, you know, uh, there's a chain of events happening. Um, yeah, the, the world is a result of a combination of things involving interests and ideas and so forth. Um, I want to have on some radically different thinkers um, at some stage, but for now I'm, I'm from now on, I'm building from my tribe, my network, um, which I think is key for anyone interested in developing a podcast, which I highly recommend. Everyone I've had on so far is a friend, someone who has done favors for me in the past, but I've also done favors for them. And, you know, it's it's I feel totally comfortable asking them to come on and, and have a chat. And it's also casual. You know, it's it's not intimidating. Um, it's not like I, I have on, um, you know, someone who I don't have any familiarity with before. So that's been pretty key in getting that's, things up that's and running huge for me too. Like when I thought, oh, I don't want to do a podcast. Uh, and I thought, well, let me make a list of people that I would want to have on. And, and the first five or 10, it was like people that I know and I, Oh, well, they're interesting. I know that it'll well, be fun to talk to them and just making it easy for myself to get in those reps. And then it just yeah, becomes easier and easier exactly. to like up the ante and go talk to people you've never talked with or people who are, you know, more uh, famous or whatever. Um, I, I agree. I think it's a great approach. So what have you learned so far from the show? Cool. Yeah. So, so one thing that everyone I've had on so far has been in agreement about, which I think is really boring. I, I uh, we wanted more interesting answers than this, but the, the answer to the question of what should people do if they're looking to get involved, the answer is always some variation of focus on comparative advantage, um, which makes sense. I mean, uh, it, it's one of the key, you know, findings in economics. Which, which I think it makes Be a lot of sense. Be more selfish. It's, it's true. Don't try to help um, the world. Help yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, exactly. That's and, my and interpretation so, of that anyway. <laughs> fair enough. And, and I think that, that it makes a lot of sense. So, you know, it, it seems like that's, that's a pretty true fact. It's just, you know, uh, do what you – yeah, so you'll benefit yourself best by whatever you do best, right? Um, and, and that's going to make you give more value and get value in return and to focus on that. One thing that I'm – interested in exploring more is like what is wrong with this theory of the, the Hayekian view of social change um, which I had in the first episode with Kyle Walker and it's very heavily a part of what Students for Liberty relies upon and I think you challenged it to some degree if not completely but I think you know th there's a not necessarily a breakdown but I think there's a changing Meaning put, of what of, of the role of intellectuals for, for listeners who don't know what what that sort of um, oh yeah in theory is sure so um, there's a chain of events in which ideas originate and people there's people in society referred to as intellectuals in the Hayekian sense who are kind of filters of what ideas are promoted and communicated and then at the end of the chain in terms of policy outcomes um, they're kind of a combination of 
the intellectual class and what they're discussing and proposing, along with um, the interests of the political system, uh, interest groups and so forth. And also within that, um, there's kind of like a feedback loop between the general populace and the intellectuals determining what outcomes are palatable. This is referred to as the Overton window. The politicians will go within the realm of what the public will accept, even if it's not the most popular opinion. So um, it's, it's kind of that um, that notion that the the ivory tower, so to speak, broadly speaking, not just universities, but the ivory tower, the commanding heights intellectually really matter. And I guess that maybe that John Maynard Keynes quote uh, is a great summation of this idea that, right. you know, even even practical men who think themselves free of any intellectual concerns are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. In other words, some intellectual brainy pants somewhere, their ideas and theories are what determine the kind of world we live in at through some sort of process of those trickling down and impacting policies and beliefs and things like that. Yes. But I would add a caveat of it's not necessarily the professors in, in a few cases like Krugman, Paul Krugman, you know, would be in this case because he is technically a professor, but it's more of he's in the media. You know, he's getting his yeah. name out there. He's getting his message communicated. So the, um, the, the, yeah, sort of the, whether it's Malcolm Gladwell or right, exactly. uh, somebody, you've, and stuff, it could yeah. be people you've never heard of who are professors or it could be, but those, those sort of people who are the ideas, people who are proposing big theories about right and wrong, about right. what government should be and all these types of things. Yeah. And so one thing that I find interesting about this is, and I want to dive into this more is you know, I, I talk about here, the media is a big part of this intellectual class deciding what ideas are out there and leading to policy outcomes. And a lot of libertarians, specifically people who identify with more of a right wing bent, too, would say, yeah, there is a, quote, mainstream media. They're all pretty unified in their beliefs and they are more pro-government than, you know, against government. They have a preference for government authority. Um, and I think that's breaking down pretty heavily right now. You know, we see that with, I think, the rise of Trump. And the media outlets promoting him like Breitbart. And what I actually kind of see here is almost like a market correction is it's like people were complaining about this idea of a mainstream media and they're all unified in their beliefs and they're pissed off about it primarily because they feel it doesn't reflect what the readers want to buy. Right. They're like there's all these people out there who don't believe this, who want their news presented to them in a different perspective. Which to the entrepreneur says opportunity to make exactly, money. Exactly. Exactly. And so that, you know, um, Breitbart and not necessarily even Andrew Breitbart himself, but the people who have carried on his business after he has passed away have seen this opportunity. Exactly. And so there's, a that, that's kind of, that's kind of the genesis on. of the think tank movement in a way it was, Hey, universities are not really doing research and advocacy and media to an, to an extent as well on limited government ideas. Um, and there's not really a place to discuss those in, in the academy. So let's start these, you know, exogenous, uh, mm -hmm. research organizations that do the stuff that universities won't do. Um, another sort of response to a, a market distortion. Interesting. I didn't know that, but that makes a lot of sense to me now. So I think it, it, it makes me question this Hayekian theory a little bit, but I think it's totally compatible. I just haven't fit them together yet. And so I think what you say there helps explain that a little bit. Another thing that I've learned so far that I want to dive into even deeper is the irrationalities of humans, I guess. In a really, I guess that comes off as a really like. Just don't call overly, people sheeple. 
<laughs> yeah. So 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 like I mean things that seem irrational but are rational in a way. Like like so like tr- tribalism is what I'm getting at here, yeah, right? Okay. And so like you know to, to like so to like the college student who like hates sports and you know it's like tries to be overly analytical is like oh I'm better than tribalism because I don't root for my sports team, but they probably have some other ways of exhibiting tribalism, right? You know, it's it's like we all are and there's there's rational reasons even if we don't understand them why humans behave in this way. And I think understanding how that works is a huge blind spot for libertarians right now. We don't think about it in those terms, but we have to acknowledge it exists and kind of a, think about how to maybe harness that for change. That's a great, um, that's a great insight rather than the temptation to say everyone's an idiot. Yeah, I'm not tribalist. You're so irrational. You just irrationally like, you know, home sports team from your city yeah. Um, if you were smart, you would overcome that. And basically telling everyone to be different rather they, than trying but, to say, what is the motivation for that? There's something yeah. there that's obviously creating value for this person, psychological value, material yes. value. Maybe it's a shortcut, a signal, who knows what's going on. But if you can understand it, that's a great point. And, and meanwhile, the, someone who poo-poos that is typically someone who does say maybe they shop at Whole Foods when they're overpaying for probably – not actually the health benefit they think they're getting from it, but it's kind of, again, like you say, like a tribal signal, right? It's yeah. like they're saying to their to their community, I belong in this community because I also shop at Whole Foods, you know? And, and so I, I think, yeah, I think understanding that is a big question people haven't really dove into, but I think it's a huge factor in social change and, and how, you know, um, change is brought about. And, and also what's happening at the current moment in the U.S. I think is, is driven by it. And... You can say it's terrible. You could say it's great. Possibly, um, I'm not really interested in that. I'm just interested in understanding it, you know, and yeah. and seeing how you can use that for change if you want to be a change maker. Um, I'm wondering. I'm sure you've got this on your list. A, a interesting tension among people who uh, classical liberal thinkers who are asking these questions has been, well, I mean, actually it goes all the way back to Adam Smith asking what is the causes of the the wealth of nations? And now you've had all these different theories. You've got the materialistic, you know, Jared Diamond type stuff. It's just based on where you happen to live and natural resources. And you've got the Max Weber, the Protestant work ethic. Um, and then you've got in, in contemporary terms, two thinkers that I, both I really enjoy who vehemently disagree on this point. Uh, okay. Pete Leeson, who I've had on this show before, um, who's an economist and very focused on kind of in the Smithian tradition that people pursuing their self-interest, um, you know, that's that's the key and everything can be explained in sort of supply and demand terms. And then Deirdre McCloskey, who's an economist who sort of, you know, writes her books about the subtitle, like why economics can't explain the modern world, which is a bit of an exaggeration of the sub of what the book actually says. But the idea that it really is about values people have and and the beliefs and feelings they have about enterprise um the way that we talk about the words that we use to describe you know making a profit and those types of things that 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 comes first and then it sort of transforms what's possible and there's i think there's a way to square those two but there's sort of an interesting debate there um that I think you can really dive into that, that eventually you'll come, you'll, you'll end up in this very philosophical question of like, what do we mean by self-interest? Because both of those could be consistent with rational self-interest. You know what I mean? But it could also be like, Oh, well you have to, 
you have to somehow overcome your self-interest and change your beliefs. But if you define self-interest broadly enough, yeah. you could say, well, a change of belief is simply um, better information. Uh, your preferences haven't changed, just your way of going about it. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Maybe I'm getting yeah. too abstract. I think, I think this is a topic, too, that people have a really hard time studying because – they get a notion into their head of what they want the answer to be, and they look for the evidence, um, you know, confirming that. And it, it's really hard for us to look at as humans because it's about us too, and we we want to define self-interest in a way that makes us feel comfortable with ourselves. Um, not to get too deep there, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's 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 what I find when this topic comes up. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm excited to see um, as you go forward. I'm excited about. I know you mentioned to me some of the different guests you've been thinking about, and I know you've got a huge list. Um, so I'm I'm really looking forward to it. And I know Ed Lopez, his book Mad Men Intellectuals and Academic Scribblers was very influential on me. Um, and actually, it was one of the just sort of one more straw on the camel's back, moving me towards going the entrepreneurial route mm, and launching nice, practice. Yeah. And and kind of as you mentioned, kind of instead of just saying the status quo is missing something, if that's true, that represents an entrepreneurial opportunity exactly. and, and yep. kind of calling my own bluff and being like, well, if I'm right, I'm so confident in my idea, then why am I such a coward? I'm not willing to go make money on it. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, Breitbart really is an example of this is they kind of went all in on a bet that a lot of people thought was kind of silly and ridiculous. And, you know, at from my view on on politics in the world it, it their stuff is trash but i have to recognize that they are hugely profiting right now i mean they're running one of the you know presidential campaigns essentially um among the two leading people i mean that, that's if you had said that two years ago you would have laughed your butt off right it's, it's crazy um but they, they they took a shot at you know profiting off of what they saw as an opportunity and they're hugely paying off from it um yeah. Yeah, whether whether or not you know to what extent those things drive social change is a, is a great question. But the the fact that every one of these problems is an opportunity is undeniable. I, I remember when I worked at IHS when I first started there, it was sort of there was sort of this unspoken belief that look, there just aren't that many students who are interested in libertarian or classical liberal ideas. There's a small number, and we'll we'll reach out to them and get them. But there's not that many. Um, and I had just come from Michigan where I was on the ground at all these universities and I was seeing there was a huge hunger, especially with the advent of Ron Paul's campaign. And I was like, no, 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 you, you don't understand. There's so many more than you think. And I think they kind of failed to see a little bit of that because they were sort of stuck in their, their MO and not to, to diss, uh, IHS at all. Um, mm -hmm. but students for Liberty was a great representation of, look, there is, there's tons of students who want classical liberal ideas and universities don't deliver them to them. And so there's a market opportunity yeah. for someone to come in and have thousands of students attending seminars and things outside of the classroom because they're so hungry. This gap in the market exists. So yeah, I think there's just, there's examples everywhere of, of those, um, you know, sort of innovations to, to prove the, the theory that, that there's just, um, something off in the marketplace. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So instead of repeating that, cause I, I totally agree. I actually want to re or add a second part to the question you asked of what have I learned doing the podcast? And so switching from just the content side about social change to what I've learned doing a podcast too. I wanted to talk about this a little bit. Oh, you anticipated. Um, great, great. Yes. Go, go into it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, number one was that it was actually really easy to do it. And, and I had some stuff that made it easier, but I think even as long as you have a laptop, 
or any kind of computer, you can do this just, just with that. Um, basically, all you need to do is set up some way of getting your audio files out there. Um, I use SoundCloud. I think you do too. Um, easy to set up. Um, you can get the free audio recording software Audacity, which I use. I think you also use Isaac. Uh-huh. And use Skype, which is also free. And you just record them and get them up online and you're good to go. You know, you can get a Facebook and a Twitter page, which I've done free. I've set up a website, but I'm actually not convinced I'm getting a whole lot of value from it. Yeah, it's weird. I don't think people consume podcasts through websites hardly at all. No, I mean, people learn about it when I post about it on Facebook and Twitter. And then they just go straight to the SoundCloud link from it or download it on their like app on their phone. um, And they're good to go. Um, I'm trying to build up an email list so that I can alert people uh, to new episodes if they're not social media users. But really, this whole having a website isn't a huge add to it. So don't even worry about that if you're thinking about doing a podcast. I might find it useful in the long term if I build up a big readership and like people want to post additional articles after their episode and stuff, they can go there. But again, I could do that on Facebook and Twitter too. So yeah. So so that was really easy. Um, I mentioned earlier, you know, relying on your your tribe is key. You know, my first set of guests I pulled from that, um, which has been great. Um, I felt comfortable doing them. It hasn't been a huge ask to bring them on. And again, like you said, getting your reps in, it's key to just getting comfortable with it. And then also like all the people listening, I'm sure are people who I'm already friends with on Facebook through my work at Students for Liberty and are interested in this question. So I'm drawing from my tribe and building publicity as well. Get that that little loyal band is all you need. Exactly. So I'm I'm pretty grateful for that. And, and I'm getting like 100 listens per episode already, which I think is great for just starting it up like two months ago. Yeah. And then the third thing is like I'm learning the value of really doing my research before the episodes. Um, like with Ed's brushed up on his book before going on just to be able to like carry the conversation deeper and, and get your guests engaged to the topic that they care about. And, and I think signaling to them that like you, you know what you're talking about with it is, is pretty key too. So getting the podcast up and running is easy. It's doing the episodes and doing them well is where the, the real work comes in. Um, so far for me, do you listen to them afterwards and sort of dissect your performance? I did with the first two. Um, I did with yours for some reason. I don't know why. Probably because um, I just talked the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had coffee One, before Once this. was just, enough just to suffer to, through it. I had some coffee before this episode to make sure I was equipped in case you did it again. Um, <laughs> I definitely did in the first beginning to get a sense of like, you know, w- what my habits are. And I'm probably saying I'm a lot, but whatever, you know. But Yeah, you can't, um, can't beat yourself up. Yeah, it's it's um I probably will continue to every couple to make sure I'm checking in on how I'm doing. But every single episode, I think it's overkill. Yeah. I, you know, it's weird. I, I kind of like don't at all because I, um, well, you're on like what episode a hundred something now? Well, yeah, but I still could. I mean, I, I could improve for sure. I just yeah. know that if I listen, I will be depressed about the quality and I won't want to. Go <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm just always forward, always forward. Um, Matt, this has been a blast. So socialchangepodcast.com. Yes. And, uh, what's your, do you, are you active on Twitter or Facebook? If people want to find you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So you can go to facebook.com slash social change podcast. And then our Twitter handle is at social change pod. Uh, like you said, the website is www.socialchangepodcast.com. Matt, this has been absolutely awesome. I'm glad you're doing this, uh, because if nothing else, it's giving me, uh, it's helping me learn. So great, uh, great to have you on the show. Thanks Isaac. I really appreciate it. Take care. You bet.